Hi everybody, my name's Nick Beard. I'm the audiovisual director here at Peninsula Covenant Church, or PCC. Welcome to our message podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Gary. Uh, I've been on staff here 21 years. Grab your message notes. This one's going to be really good. I think it's going to minister to us today where we are. And I want to open by a story that uh, ran the newspaper, True Story, and uh, that I recently read about. It's about a guy named Jay Rathman. And Jay was hiking near Red Bluff, California, and he was climbing a ledge, and he raised his head just to come in time to come eye to eye with a coiled rattlesnake, Okay. Uh, and it struck him, just missing his right ear. And what happens next, I am not making up. I'm actually just going to read, so I just get it word for word because it's phenomenal. The four-foot rattlesnake fangs got snagged in the neck of Rathman's wool turtleneck sweater. And while desperately attempting to pull himself loose, the snake actually went around his left shoulder and then coiled in panic around Rathman's neck, trying to set itself free. So Rathman grabbed it behind the head, and he said, I could feel the warm venom of the snake soaking down my back as the rattles were making a furious racket. And it gets worse. Then he falls backwards, and he slides headfirst down a steep slope with the snake still stuck in his sweater. He stopped abruptly, wedged between two rocks, and felt his feet fell with his feet above his head, barely able to move. While hanging there, he disengaged the snake's fangs from his sweater, and it struck again. It made about eight attempts in the constricted space, but it couldn't get real good leverage. Rathman says, quote, he did manage me to hit me with his nose just below my eye four times. It was real close quarters. This chap and I were eyeball to eyeball. Rathman says, I found out snakes don't blink. (laughs) Hanging upside down, I was afraid I was going to pass out, so I choked him to death. See, now, if that was the article, and it was my case, at that point, I would have said, and at that point, I wet myself. I mean, just, (laughs) just something like I completely lost it. Who is this guy? He's 45. I'll tell you who he is. He works for the Defense Department in San Jose. He estimates his encounter with the snake lasted about 20 minutes. State Park Warden Dave Smith is quoted in this article. He says, Rathman walked towards me holding this dead rattlesnake and said with a grin on his face, uh, I'd like to register a complaint about the wildlife in this area. (laughs) Now, maybe you feel like that today. Maybe you've come in and you're wearing your nice clothes and you're feeling, you know, projecting that everything's great. But if truth be told, you feel like you're hanging upside down on a cliff in closed quarters with a snake coiled around your neck. You're in the fight of your life. And you're saying to God, "Um, I'd like to register a complaint. I'd like to register a complaint about my life circumstances. Or I'd like to register a complaint about this life stage. Or I'd like to register a complaint about this relationship. Or I'd like to register a complaint about this health issue. Truth be told, we all suffer. And the amount of suffering in this room is mind-boggling. I want to just pause and ask you, 
if you were to register a complaint, and we're not giving freedom for complaint here, but if you were, what is the lament and the suffering that you carry into the room? I want you to think about that. I'm going to give you 30 seconds to validate that because I want you to hold that through the rest of this message. Identify what is the pain that you've brought into the room. I want you to know you're not alone. And we're looking at these seven letters written to real churches that existed 2,000 years ago, churches that were about a quarter of our size in this room. And there was a lot of pain in the room when it came to the Smyrna church when they gathered. Literally, it felt like them, like the Roman Empire was coiled around their neck, terrorizing them, sucking the life out of them. And this is really important today, and I want to tell you why. This suffering thing is very real, and uh, I'll just use a, it, something that happened to me yesterday to tell you why. I've been here 21 years, and I started as a youth pastor around here, and then I took a demotion and became the lead pastor, okay? Um, and uh, being here 21 years, you run into adults who were part of your youth group when they were teenagers, and being a youth pastor, you share life. You're crazy as a youth pastor. You share life and love sharing life with teenagers. So then you have circumstances like I had yesterday at Whole Foods. Uh, I was headed by the, the fresh food section, and I ran into, I'll call him Gary. I ran into Gary, who was a teenager in our ministry. We did a lot of life together. And I can tell after one question by the body language the answer to that question. I said, Gary, how are you doing? And I can tell by their body language, uh, usually within five seconds, whether they're still walking with Jesus or not. And given Gary's body language, I could tell he wasn't. I'm doing good, I'm doing good, I'm, doing, oh, I'm okay, keeping it real, you know, just stuff like that. And stuff we never said like when we were in youth group together. Uh, but anyway, and, and so as I explore more, in Gary's case, his father got a disease in college and he said, I, I couldn't imagine God giving my dad this disease that took his life. So I just stopped walking with God. He pointed to a place of pain as his line of demarcation where he said, this is where I stop with you, God, because of that suffering. I'm not belittling that, and his story's still being written. I'm trusting God for Gary to this day. I'm not judging him at all. Now, let me contrast that with my first stop on my Sunday tour every Sunday. I start here at 8.55, and the median age in here at 8.55 is around 70 years old. It's a hymn-driven service, and uh, people that are great, that have walked with God for decades, people that took out second mortgages so we could have this building and so we could have a community center. I mean, these people sacrificed there in this room, and the, the energy is amazing. But the pain in there is amazing. You interview those people. I leave and I walk out the back and my last stop, I wrote about this three weeks ago in the email to the church, is with a guy named Paul who has Lou Gehrig's disease and, and literally it's just creeping up his body. I've seen him go from walking with a cane to walking with crutches to walking with a walker and now he's in a wheelchair. Literally doing ushering in his wheelchair as he comes down the aisle. He loves serving that much. 
But you talk to people like that about their faith and why it's so vivid, and you know what they point to? You know, my faith was great, but then cancer hit. Or then my kid died, or then they never say it that crassly. Or, or then I got this debilitating disease. And Jesus really became real to me at that point. Because I realized he's all I have. Two similar situations, similar suffering. One causes a kid to walk away from God. One causes an adult to embrace Jesus all the more. Suffering will make you bitter or it'll make you better. But one thing's true, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, suffering has your name on it, it has my name on it. It's part of the human existence. And if you're not a follower of Christ, I would just want you to lean in right now because I think this is one of the best reasons to follow Christ. Apart from that, life is just some cosmic game in this galaxy where everyone gets afflicted, kind of like Russian roulette, and you're just waiting for the bullet to come your way. But with Christ, he gives purpose, as we'll see with this church, to the suffering. And what we'll see, this is so important, so important, that with Christ, suffering doesn't have the last word. Jesus is the last word. We'll see that in this letter. So lean in, everybody. This is going to be a great encouragement. I didn't say this is going to be a great sermon because of my homiletical skills. They, they actually stink. I'm scattered today. But this is a great message because the Word of God is great, and it's going to hit right where we're living. Amen? So let me tell you. Open your Bibles to Revelation 2, and let me tell you about this city, Smyrna. Brian did a great job, great job last week kicking this off. I just, we have the profiles because I want you to see how personal Jesus is speaking to the church. We're going to see that crystal clarity this week. But just, I, I, I won't go down all these points, but there's some things I want you to know about Smyrna. Uh, the first thing is this. Smyrna, you can see, can we go to the map? There we go. Smyrna was right uh, on a port. Smyrna was like an ancient truck stop an ancient truck stop for people on the trade route. They would go to Smyrna to get their ships stocked up, to get their camels stocked up. They were known for their trades, trades. They were known for um, pottery. They were known for uh, their garments. Anyone ever heard of a woman named Priscilla who dealt in purple goods? She came from Smyrna, right? Smyrna exported tons of garments. Um, and so because of the commercial center that it was, the unions were huge. They didn't call them unions in those days. They were called trade guilds. But it was the original union city, Smyrna. And you couldn't survive if you weren't part of a union. And the challenge for this is this. You couldn't follow Christ and be part of a union because each union had their own small g God and would worship that God in, in dehumanizing ways. More than just giving money to it, they'd worship that God in very dehumanizing ways. And so this put great pressure on the followers of Christ. Uh, so a commercial center, okay? They actually, if you can go to the arches picture, I'm gonna kind of jump around. They've unearthed in Smyrna uh, a three-story shopping mall. Uh, this is the first, the arches that, um, that are, you know, were unheard of. This, uh, this city kept being destroyed. Their motto, who knows Rebid City's motto? Climate best. Who can prove that? Okay, right? Um, the motto of Smyrna was the city that died and rose again. Multiple times in their history, they were wiped out by war, by earthquake, by floods, and they kept rebuilding and rebuilding. And every time they rebuilt, they got greater and grander and grander and grander to the point where we have still, to this day, arched ways from the first floor of a three-story mall. Who does that in the ancient world? 
They built fountains that actually still run to this day. That's a 2,000-year-old fountain that's still producing water. Uh, They still have unearthed the artifacts of what they were selling in the mall. So this city was known as the city that their, their moniker, they're proud of, that died and rose again. Last thing I want to tell you, Brian did a great job last week of saying the uh, brand of Ephesus was a bee. The brand of Smyrna was a crown. Uh, On top of the city was a fortress that looked like a crown. Uh, Can we go to the next slide? Get a little closer, I think. Nope, that's as close as we're going to get. Okay. But uh, on all their coins on the back, they had crowns. Let's look at some of those coins. See the crowns? Go to the next one. I have five coins here. See the crowns all there? That last one is a laurel wreath because in the city, like every city, they'd have an athletic competition and you'd win a laurel wreath. So when Jesus says uh, to the angel of the church of uh, Smyrna, these are the words of the first and the last who died and came to life again. He knows and he's speaking their language, their dialect. When he's saying, you know what, be faithful even to the point of death, I'll give you life as your victor's crown. He's saying the best thing the city can give you is a laurel wreath. I'll one-up them if you're faithful. I'll give you life, like really life as your victor's crown. Do you see how he's speaking directly to where they're living? If he was going to write a letter to Peninsula Covenant Church, he, I think, would use the climate best by government test language. And say, I'm so much better than that. He would use, I don't know if we have a brand around here, but he'd say, I'm better than that. Jesus in all these churches is just unveiling the layers and say, here's what's happening on earth. This is where you place in the Roman Empire, but here's who I am if you follow me. And so he talks to this church. Now let's go to page two and let me give us three encouragements to suffering people. And there are three two-letter, two-word phrases. I, I blew it in these notes. I don't know how I can review notes like five times and miss this, but that's kind of the week I've come out of. Uh, so I didn't even get the first main point. It's gonna be on the screen. Can we go to the first main point? Here's the first two-word statement to suffering people like you and me. I know. I know. So write that in your notes, please. I know. Now, I'm going to go really slow in this verse. We're kind of going to go word by word because it's so amazing how personal God is. Actually, this caused me to worship. As I'm walking through a season of lament, uh, this caused me to worship this, this phrase, okay? So here's the first thing God says. I know. I know what you're uh, the word you're there, just like in the English language, and uh, this was written in an ancient Greek language. And for pronouns, they had personal pronouns, like you personal. And they had plural pronouns, like I see you, plural, I see all of you, okay? When God writes to this church, he says, I know you're, and I'm like, huh, I wonder if that's a singular or plural. You know what it is? It's singular. That's amazing, That means that when you're worshiping God collectively, our worship goes up into the throne room of God and God goes, oh, I hear that worship. I love you, okay? Plural, Peninsula Covenant Church. But as you come into this building, God says, Pat, Pat, you're here. Oh, Pat. And it's like he comes alongside and just says, 
I love that you're here, Pat. I know what you're going through. Bob, I know what you're going through. If I had like three or four hours, I would do this one by one knowing your stories. Kalini, we have a, a, a saint. Can, you, can we just honor this man? He's come from Rwanda. Can you stand up, please, Bishop Kalini? Can we honor Bishop Kalini from Rwanda? Imagine what he's lived through. I, I know your story a little bit. Unthinkable. And Jesus says, Kalini, I see you here. You personally. Is this your wife, brother? Welcome. I see you. I know the pain that you've gone through personally. Just knowing that God knows half the battle. More than half the battle. In other words, God isn't so fixated on the Middle East or uh, what's going on in, in certain areas around the world that he isn't saying, what, 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 you're, you're moving? I didn't know you were moving, I'm so sorry. I, how did that pass by me? He knows. He knows the pain of what you accessed when I asked you what is the suffering you bring into the room. What does he know? Look what it says, there's three things. I put them in bold. I know your afflictions. The word means, it's a unique word, uh, not just the normal pressures of life. We all live with pressure, you know, mortgage pressure, uh, raising teenager pressure, all that, you know, test pressure if you're a student. No, this is different. This is crushing pressure. Crushing pressure. Have you ever heard of a herb used in uh, the Bible times called myrrh? Smyrna, myrrh, same root word. Myrrh was a fragrance that was an embalming fluid, if you would. It wasn't a fluid, it was a a herb uh, scent. But uh, the myrrh had to be crushed for the aroma to be released. Remember Jesus when the wise men came to his baby shower? They brought gold, they brought frankincense, and they brought myrrh. Who brings embalming fluid to a baby shower? Wise men who know this baby was born to die. So that through his suffering, we would never have to suffer in vain. And through his bloody back and stripes, we get healed. And so God speaks directly to them and says, I know you're the city of myrrh. The city that a spice that's crushed for an aroma to be released. And I am going to take that and tell you that you will be crushed for the aroma of Christ to be released through you. Your suffering's not in vain. What else does he know? I, I know your poverty. I know you've been kicked out of the unions. I know you can't put food on the table. I know that your allegiance to me means that you become poor and you haven't given up. I'm so challenged by this because I have to ask myself, uh, like, where is my line that I draw with God and go, man, this suffering's bad. If it gets any worse, I don't know if I can hang in there, God, with you. And this is a church that said, there's no line. I'm hanging in there with you. 
And Jesus said, I know your poverty. And then I know your slander of those who say they are Jews but are the synagogue of Satan. They face, this is not an anti-Semitic verse. They face great religious persecution because of uh, political reasons where the Jews were upset that the Christians weren't paying a tribute to the Roman god, Roma, in Tiberias. They couldn't say Caesar is Lord, and the Jews were afraid that would get them in trouble. And so Satan, you can see that, was, there's, the, there's the temple that still exists to this day. Satan was stirring the pot, using the Jews to put religious pressure on them. So they were getting crushed from all sides. The snake was coiled around their neck. Politically, Rome was pressuring them. Culturally and commercially, the trades were pressuring them. Religiously, uh, the synagogue, Satan was stirring them to pressure them. And here's this church. And of all the seven churches, this is just one of two that Jesus has no corrective. He's that tender. What does the Bible say? It says this. Thanks for asking. <laughs> it, says, um, it says, a bruised reed I won't break. And a smoldering wick I won't snuff out. That's the words of Jesus. He knows how hard it is. And like I came alongside Pat or Bob, or if I could, I'd come alongside each one of you. Jesus comes alongside and says, I know it's hard. I'm sorry in, in my game plan, I didn't let you know how hard life would be. I tried to, I lived it. You saw what happened to me and I was perfect. But I know. Then he says this, after he says, I know, he says, don't fear or fear not. Wow, what? You just told me I'm about to get crushed like a myrrh herb and you just built out this pressure all around and you're saying, don't be afraid. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. 83 times in the scriptures, we're told to fear not. Those are promises. This isn't a promise, church. This is actually a command. There's two commands in this passage. Here's the first, don't be afraid. Look what it says in chapter, uh, chapter two, verse 10. Look what he says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. What? How do you pull that off? I wanna get really practical for about three or four minutes. Let's start with what he's not saying. He's not saying, he's saying fear not. He's not saying feel not. He's not saying feel not. The book reading will bring that out this week. Jesus walked this earth as a perfect human being. Can anyone tell me times when Jesus' emotions came out in the Gospels? Who can just think of emotion that came out of Jesus? When Lazarus died, what was the emotion, Peggy? He cried. What else? Remember the garden? Overturned tables, he was angry. In the garden, he was so overcome with the thought of going to the cross, he sweat blood. So he's not saying don't feel. Don't tell me Jesus didn't feel on the cross crying out when his body was being shredded apart. He felt that feelings are healthy. He's also not saying don't be afraid because you will not suffer. He's not saying that. This is, Jesus is amazingly honest. He's going like following me doesn't give you some uh, sidestep from pain and suffering. As a matter of fact, he promised just the opposite in John 16, I think it's in your notes. It is. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. I promise you, following me, you're going to have trouble. Um, so being a youth pastor, okay, uh, we took this, we still do, and they take it to a whole new level than I ever took it. But we take a trip to Mexico 
every year, mission trip, in the dirt of Mexico, right? You guys know what that's about. And um, my last fourth year as a youth pastor, a senior joined the trip for the first time. We go through extensive training, and this is no lie. We drive down to Mexico. We're setting up our tents in this field, same field in Ensenada, and um, uh, in the hills, dirt everywhere. And I'm five minutes into this, and I'll call him Gary. Gary comes up to me, and he's like, hey, I got a problem. And now when you're the youth pastor on the trip, you're just embraced for problems, right? And I'm like, oh, what's your problem? And this is no lie. He says, I don't like dirt. (laughs) I was was speechless. I was like, and I, I said, hey, we did four weeks of training. We probably logged in 15, I, I was, we did way more training. They don't, you know, way, we did 15. At what point did I not tell you that this was not gonna have dirt as part of the equation? Like, you don't like dirt? What'd you think you were coming into? And that led on. Okay, here's where I'm going with that. With the absurdity that Gary came to me saying, I don't like dirt, I think sometimes is the same absurdity when I come to God and go, why am I suffering? I think sometimes God turns to me and says, well, did you expect that your family would live forever? Did you really expect you wouldn't get old? Did you really expect you would never need ibuprofen your whole life? I'm not belittling that. Because trust me, the pain in this room is way more than ibuprofen. So I, I don't want to even go any further. But God says, hey, suffering is part of this. But here's what Jesus promised. Go back to verse 8. Can you find chapter 2, verse 8 on the slide? Look at that. Awesome. Jesus says to the angel of the church of Smyrna, right? These are the words of him. And here's what I want you to hold on to. Who is the first and the last. In other words... That pain, that loss, those tears, those sleepless nights, that's not the last word. The graveside is not the last word. Jesus is the last word. And what Jesus is going to do with this church is going to expand their view. Because I don't know, like me, you're probably like me. Hopefully you're not a lot like me, but in this way you might be like me, where my view is cradled to the grave. And I call it, uh, I'm suffering because I see my grave coming closer and closer and closer. And Jesus says, let me just pull your end game a little farther into eternity. Because the grave's not your last word. I'm your last word. And so when I'm your last word, you don't need to be afraid of what happens in your short 70, 80 years of life because I'll walk with you through it. I don't know if that's making any sense. Um, uh, Let's go to the Apostle Paul. Let the Bible speak when I find myself not able to speak. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it's in your notes. Verse 5, it says this. Paul says, you know, when thoughts come into your mind, this has helped me so much, even to recently, it says, we demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. This is a verse worth dwelling on, everybody, when you leave here today. Then look at this phrase. I underlined it and made it bold. We take captive. In the first century, it was an image of an interrogation of a prisoner of war. 
What Paul's saying is all these rogue thoughts come into my mind and the only way, and think the Apostle Paul, right? Think about how much he suffered. He says, I actually stop the thoughts and interrogate them. And when they're rogue, I make them obey the Lord Jesus Christ. I align it with scripture or it doesn't stick. I'm going to a conference later today and I'll go through the San Jose TSA and I'll come across this machine and it just dawned on me like, gosh, I need one of those for my mind. You know, I'll take off my belt, I'll take off my shoes, I'll put everything in those buckets or whatever and they'll go through to detect if anything harmful is being brought on a plane. How many times do I let harmful thoughts lodge in my mind? and paint a narrative about God or others that just isn't true. That's why we can fear not. Because we let true thoughts take root about who God is. This leads me to my last point, and this is really important, then we'll land this plane. The last point is this, trust me. And actually, this is where the rubber meets the road. Trust me, can God be trusted? This is actually the second command in the passage to the church. Here's what it is. He says, be faithful even to the point of what? Death. Okay, let me ask you this question. Didn't ask it of the other four. Just especially for you, because this is where the Holy Spirit just convicted me. How would you fill in this phrase? Be faithful to the point of blank. In other words, in your mind... And grace to everybody, okay? Where does your faithfulness end? In your allegiance to Jesus Christ. I say that so humbly because, I mean, the, the pain in this room is so real. And, and you know, I, I won't point out, there are, there are giants in faith in this very room, starting with Bishop Kalini and his wife, that have been faithful through atrocity and unthinkable experiences. Jesus says, trust me. He's not saying be faithful because it's about you. He's saying I'll meet you every day in that. So let's just take a day at a time and you can trust me. I'll give you your life as a victor's crown. I'll give you real life. So you know what? And by the way, when I say trust me, at the bottom of page three, I wrote the character of Jesus that's displayed to Smyrna. This is what I'm asking us to trust. But Jesus is inviting us, who he is, to trust. Here's the deal. And then we close in prayer. I promise. I promise. Um, so of all the churches that Jesus wrote, Smyrna had it worse by far. They had it worse than any other church. They were persecuted and beaten, even to this weekend, like Brian mentioned, with uh, uh, Pastor um, Summers being released. Is it Summers? Brunson, Pastor Brunson being released. Um, But do you know today that Smyrna of the Seven is the only church that still is in existence today? Uh, did you know they have a history of suffering? And if I did have an hour and we were a church history class, I would tell you about Polycarp. I would tell you about uh, the way that uh, Domitian slaughtered 40,000 Christians around this time. I would tell you about uh, just crazy stuff going on. 
But do you know what Izmir, that city, is today? That city. It's the center of Christianity for all of Turkey. Because God has crushed them and culture has crushed them. God didn't crush them. Culture has crushed them. And a fragrant offering has been released. And the gospel is being spread from Izmir unlike any of the other seven churches. Because suffering doesn't have the last word. Jesus does. So Jesus says to you, Tom Johnson, I know your pain. I love you. Trust me. And you'll get the true crown of life. Let's pray. I love you, Jesus. And I don't just say that because I'm on a platform and that's what the pastor should say. I say that when no one's around uh, and I'm looking at this and just in a cubicle in a library wanting to shout and scream at the top of my lungs saying, I can't believe you know me that well. I can't believe your word is that personal. I can't believe your presence is that amazing. You outshine all the pain and suffering. It's true. It's really true. And I know a thousand years from now, the faithfulness you well up in us will make sense. So God, we're myrrh. Our lives are myrrh. This church is myrrh. Help us to hold each other's pain well. And God, I know you do. I go back to your promise. Remember that suffering, everybody, that you held on to? Here's the word of Jesus for us. Smoldering wick, I won't snuff out. A bruised reed, I won't break. Use our lives, Lord. May we be uh, the fragrant aroma on this peninsula of your reality. Pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Thank you so much for listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church podcast. We believe you're here for a reason and we would love to connect with you more. Our campuses are located in Redwood City, California. You can find us online at wearepcc.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for We Are PCC.